went into the barn, one by one. One way or another, they were lured there. Andreas and his wife were first, aged 63 and 72. Their widowed daughter, Victoria, and her young child were next. Four bodies in total, found in the barn. All of them were killed with a mattock, similar to a pickaxe. This particular one was found nearly a year later. When they destroyed the barn and the house, they found the murder weapon, still hidden where it had been, still stained with blood. That wasn't the only thing they found in the house though. Because after those four bodies were found in the barn, two more were discovered inside. A two-year-old, Joseph, who was another one of Victoria's children, as well as the housemaid. Both of them were in their beds, both killed in the same cruel manner. At least it was a quick death, right? But remember that first young child, the one found dead in the barn with her mother? Her name was Kazelia, and she was only seven. In fact, it was her not showing up to school that started the whole search, which ultimately led to the bodies being found. While the others died soon after being struck, almost immediately, this poor young girl wasn't so lucky. For several hours, Kazelia lay bleeding to death, a large wound in her head, excruciating pain racking her body. She writhed on the floor, pulled out her own hair in such agony. Beside her was her mother and her grandparents, already dead. Sounds like a nightmare scenario, if you ask me. That's not it, though. Because, you see, this murderer, he went into the house and killed the baby and the maid, as we talked about. But then he stuck around. It took the townspeople days to finally discover these bodies, because everybody thought the Andreas farm was okay. Smoke was still rising from the chimney, and the animals were in the field being taken care of. If you haven't guessed it by now, this killer made himself at home for nearly a week after the murders. Next to these riding bodies, in their beds, eating their food, he made a life for himself in their home. If you believe the stories though, he'd already been there for a while. Maybe for months. He was already enjoying himself in their home. That's because this killer was more than just a murderer. He hadn't just taken their lives, he'd been taking them for a long time. Six months earlier, somebody knew that this house wasn't right. It was their first maid who left, complaining about ghosts. There were voices in her room, she said. Voices in the attic, voices in the walls. Footsteps were on the ceiling or on the floor above her. Nothing really made sense, but she knew that it wasn't right, and she knew that she needed to get out of there. That decision probably saved her life. Whatever happened with that first maid, she said her goodbyes with a pale, haunted face. Andreas let her go quietly, and hired a new maid to replace her. This new one, Maria, 
wouldn't arrive for six months though. Actually, the very day she came, she died. March 31st, she arrived, and only hours later, they were all dead. That is one of the strangest coincidences in this entire case. What are the chances that this new maid came on the scene just hours before the massacre? Is it something the killer had planned out, or just the perfect example of right place at the wrong time? That first maid we talked about was actually the number one suspect for a while, though not for long. When the police gave up on her, they moved on to the next suspect and then the next. Almost all of these cases, the idea for who may have killed them, revolved around Andreas, who was an old farmer with his share of secrets. Because from the outside, this family was okay, they were fine. But behind the closed doors of that farmhouse, things were a mess, and that mess was about to spill. It was about two weeks before the murders, and there was a snowstorm on the farm. It was a terrible one, according to the story. It covered the ground and layer upon layer of snow, so that Andreas started to notice footsteps. It wasn't that uncommon, really. People were passing by their house, over their land, and heading to a different place. Property wasn't as big of a deal back then, so walking across someone's yard to get to a different destination wasn't a problem. Probably bored and with nothing to do, he walked out to the edge of the forest and started inspecting these footsteps. There was one pair leading towards their home and stopping. There were none on the other side, none passing through their fields, and none coming back. Whoever had gone to their house had stayed. Now you might be thinking, well it could have just been one of the kids, but this snowstorm was severe enough that they had stayed in their house for you know, an extended amount of time. So whoever made these footprints was not part of their family. He set about searching the house because that's the logical thing to do. But of course he found nothing. That doesn't mean he forgot about it though. Quite the contrary. That very night, he heard noises from their attic, from the bed. Footsteps, just like the maid had reported. Maybe it was just his imagination, something that had gotten inside his head and was now plaguing his thoughts. Or maybe it was something much closer, inside his house. Andreas was a big target for gossip, and a bigger one for hate. He was not liked at all. Some people actually spread rumors that his daughter's child, Joseph, the two-year-old, was his own. Incest in this community was a rumor that never went away and still hasn't to this day. The husband, you see, of Victoria had been away at war and died years earlier. Joseph was only two and there were a couple years between his mother's husband's death and his birth. Those numbers don't line up. It seems very possible and very likely that something happened between Andreas and Victoria. He denied it, of course, which leads us to the peculiar case of Lawrence Schlittenbauer, 
I'm going to avoid saying that name because it's just too difficult. Their neighbor, Lawrence, claimed that he was in fact Joseph's father. He even went so far as to pay child support for a time. Once that money stopped coming in, Victoria sued him for more. Suffice to say, their relationship was not a very friendly one, and neither was Andreas's with this man. Well, poor guy, you might be saying to yourself. He caught the heat for a baby that might or might not have been his, and now he's wrapped up in this case forever. That's not exactly true though, because if Lawrence is innocent, he did himself no favors and seems to have proved the opposite. Because when they went to discover the bodies, he was the first one that found them. While everybody else was searching these fields and the outsides, he went straight to the barn, straight to the source. Not only that, but he unlocked that barn with a set of keys that nobody explained him having. How did Lawrence have these keys to his neighbor's home? I don't know. A week or two passed, and nothing happened. Andreas complained to some men in town about the footprints and the sounds and the general creepiness of everything, but they weren't very eager to listen. The old farmer wasn't a town favorite, as I said, and he certainly wasn't worth their time in the harsh winter months. Left on his own after discovering those footprints, Andreas bundled up his family and prepared to face whatever storm was coming. March 30th, a set of keys goes missing. March 31st, the new maid we talked about comes to the house. It's her first day on the job, and we know how that ends. April 1st, the seven-year-old girl missed school, which was rare. She was excused and marked absent. Maybe she caught a cold. April 2nd, the mailman reported that newspapers had not been picked up by the family and that he hadn't seen Andreas out feeding the animals. The animals were fine and the chimney had smoke rising from it, but the family was still nowhere to be seen. April 3rd, the little girl missed school again. April 4th, again she wasn't at school. The search party went to the home. They found them in the barn lying in pools of blood. Whatever happened between March 31st and April 4th, we know the killer stuck around and had some meals. He slept in their beds, he ate their food, he fed their animals, and he took care of their house. Before that, we can't be for sure. The footprints in the snow and the missing keys seem to suggest that he had been there for a while. There may have been some evidence in the attic or in the barn. They were connected, after all. If ever there was a perfect place for a stalker to live, it was in this home. But who killed them? Was it the first maid? Did she stick around for all those months and then kill the family and her replacement? That motive doesn't exactly stick, as well as why she would leave in the first place. Or maybe it was the neighbor, Lawrence, who was sick of all the child drama, lawsuits, and rumors spreading around town. That doesn't make total sense, as he wouldn't have needed to stay in the house, 
and the footprints leading to the house don't seem to be just a random um, event. Was it the army soldier, Victoria's husband? He might have been angry about all the drama with the child and he could have taken out his revenge on the whole family. This fits with motive and with the stalker part of the case, but the problem is he was supposed to have been dead. We can make a case for ghosts if you really want to. There were certainly rumors about them ever since that first maid. Andreas heard things in the attic as well, and they never did find the killer, only the weapon. I doubt we'll ever truly know what happened. There are so many moving parts to this case, finding a solution seems impossible. Especially all these years later, almost a hundred, the murder has gone colder than gold. The property has been destroyed, replaced with a small shrine that you can still view today if you travel to Germany. That's the only thing left of these horrendous acts, a small stone structure impossible to find unless you're searching for it. The scariest things in this world aren't what you see. A strange look from a person or a quiet footsteps of somebody following you on the road. These are the types of moments that make your blood run cold and will give you nightmares as you sleep. But sometimes what's outside our house isn't all that bad. We can hide from it, after all. We can go inside, we can lock the doors, we can get a cup of coffee, and we can relax because our home is safety. Just remember, locked doors can't always save you because sometimes they have a key too. Or, even worse, they don't need one. They're already inside. Fear was written and produced by me, David Coomer. The music was found online from a free site called Incompetech, which is where I get all the free music for the site so far. It's a perfect song for the podcast, in my not-so-professional opinion. If you're wondering about where I got all this information from, you can head over to davidcoomer.com, where you'll find more stuff about the podcast, including my research and how you can help support it. If you haven't heard, I also write books, which are available on Amazon. If you want to read something and hold it in your hands and really experience it more in depth. They're inexpensive, but thrilling, so go enjoy it. Please, if you haven't already, review the show on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening from. It helps me, it helps all the other listeners, and it helps us to grow the show. If you have any questions or suggestions for an upcoming episode, email me at davidcoomer7 at gmail.com. And also, you can find tons of stuff over on my website. Go check it out. And remember, always keep your lights on.